Hey there, Shankar here. We wanted to give you a heads up about something you should know before listening to this episode. Several years after we conducted this interview, researchers raised concerns about a number of studies authored by Dan Ariely, including one that is cited in this episode. That study included data from an insurance company that said people are more truthful when they sign an ethics declaration at the beginning of a form rather than at the end. In an independent review, a group of researchers found evidence of data fabrication in that study. You can read more about their findings, along with responses from Dan Ariely and the company that provided the data. Links are in the show notes. Additionally, a second study cited in this episode, in which Ariely reported reduced cheating among test takers asked to recall the Ten Commandments before taking the test, has not stood up to replication by other researchers. Thanks. When we think about dishonesty, we mostly think about the big stuff. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. Thousands of people were cheering. I've said it for longer than seven years. I have never doped. The answer is I did not send that tweet. It, my system was hacked. I was pranked. It was a fairly common one. People make fun of my name all the time. When you name Wiener, it, it, you kind of get that. He goes, hey, I know a way that we can both make a little bit of money. You give me information. I'm going to trade on it. I will split it three ways. This kind of dishonesty seems so blatant, so wrong. And you say to yourself, wow, I could have never done this. Like, this is a different kind of a person. That's not me. I can't possibly be like that person. This is Dan Ariely, researcher and author of the book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. Dan says the truth about dishonesty might surprise you. What separates honest people from not honest people is not necessarily character, it's opportunity. We'll also talk about Dan's personal life and what a life-threatening injury taught him about deception and self-deception. It's kind of embarrassing. Do we, have to, do we have to talk about that? Can we talk about something else? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language app. Learn to confidently speak a new language with Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com to try your first Babbel lesson for free. Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University, and today we're listening back on our conversation from March 2017. Dan, welcome to Hidden Brain. My pleasure. So nice to be here. Dan, with many Americans thinking about their taxes right now, I want to start with a counterintuitive question. Why don't more people cheat on their taxes? Uh, Most of us know the IRS is overwhelmed and overstretched, so rationally, more people ought to get away with cheating than actually do? Well, first of all, uh, just by saying it, maybe you've increased the proportion of people who <laughs> cheat uh, this year, so maybe you're contributing <laughs> to the issue. But, but the truth is that you're absolutely right. When we look at dishonesty, we often look at the half-empty part of the glass and we look at all the things that people do badly. But the reality is that we are really quite wonderful. We don't have to go all the way to taxes. We can think about all kinds of other cases. So in the last few years, almost every time I go to a restaurant, I ask the waiter if there's a way to eat and escape without paying. And, you know, sometimes they get strange looks. Sometimes they ask me for my credit card. (laughs) 
<laughs> but they always give me good advice. They say things like, wait for a big party to come, go to the bathroom, there's an alley. I mean, they have suggestions of how to escape without paying. And then I ask them, how often does it happen? And they say, very rarely. And in fact, they say sometimes people leave the restaurant without paying because, you know, we forget whether we paid or not paid. We don't pay attention. And people call back and pay over the phone. So there's a lot of goodness in us. And in fact, the, the surprising thing for a rational economist would be why don't people steal more, right? Why, why don't we take advantage? So we do have some internal moral conscience, we have internalized the values of society, and we don't need anybody around us. We don't need prison sentences. We don't need to be afraid. We make our own judgment of what's right and wrong, and we adhere to those decisions. Now, not perfectly, but to a very large degree. Hmm. One of the things that I find interesting about what you're saying is that in some ways, people are often unthinkingly honest. Uh, in other words, they're not actually asking themselves, what room do I have to be dishonest? They're actually honest just because it's a rule that they're following. And of course, much of your work has focused on the flip side of that, which is that people are also unthinkingly dishonest. It's not just people who are trying to be dishonest, but people who are making small lapses, small slips, without really thinking about it very clearly. That's exactly right. And you know, when, when we think about dishonesty, uh, we often think about kind of big cases of people who've, uh, you know, done terrible things. And in the research on dishonesty, we've done lots of lab experiments, but we've also interviewed 40 big cheaters. But what was so interesting about these discussions is, without exception, all of them, when you talk to these people and you, and you try to figure out how did they get to where they got, and you say to yourself, wow, I could have never done this. Like, this is a different kind of a person. That's not me. I can't possibly be like that person. But when instead you ask these people to tell you what was their first step, what was the first thing they did, you can say to yourself, I could have done that. I could have seen myself in that, in that case. And I can give you one example. One of the guys we talked to, his name is uh, Joe Pep. And Joe was a cyclist. He loved cycling. He loved nothing else in the world but cycling. Um, he was in the Olympic team, the American Olympic team. And then at some point, he went back to school to finish his degree. After a few years, went back to cycling. He goes on this race, but he feels that everybody else is slightly faster. And he's incredibly frustrated, and he cries that night. And one of his friends says, here's a name for a doctor. He goes to see this doctor, white coat and a stethoscope, and the doctor prescribes to him a EPO. EPO is a drug that people use for cancer that increases the production of red blood cells. Really good thing if you need energy, right? It, it means oxygen, basically. He goes to the pharmacy. He gives them the prescription. His insurance company pays for it. He pays the deductible. He takes it to his uh, apartment. He gives himself the first injection then the next day, the next injection, and so on. Eventually, it's, it's a habit. Then he moves to another team. He finds out that everybody else is doing it. They do it more publicly. Anyway, things continue. Then there's a shortage of EPO. But he has a friend uh, that has connection in China on a Chinese team, and he puts him in touch with a Chinese factory who produces EPO. He imports EPO for himself. Then his friends find out about it and ask him to import for them as well. So he imports for, for them as well. Eventually, he's a drug dealer. Now, if, if you just look at 
Joe Pepp and you say, could I ever become a drug dealer who imports EPO? You would say no. But when you look at the first step, you would ask yourself, where exactly would we stop? Imagine yourself in his shoes. Like it's the first day, you just came back to cycling, you do just as well as you thought you could, everybody is faster. Don't you cry? Of course you do. A friend gives you an address for a physician. Don't you go? Of course you do. The physician gives you a prescription. Don't you go to fill it? Of course you do. You get the prescription, you have all these injections, don't you try once? Of course you do. I mean, when exactly would we stop? And, and one of the frightening conclusions we have is that what separates honest people from not honest people is not necessarily character, it's opportunity, right? And, and if we were all in Joe's shoes, uh, maybe we would have all been like this, exactly like that. One of the things that caught my eye recently, Dan, is that you had a paper that actually explores this very idea from the point of view of science. And this study, remarkably, was actually looking at how the brain operates as people were making these little deceptions. Yeah, so, so the brain is really a mechanism for detecting surprising things, right? The, the brain is basically working on adaptation. Uh, you get to a certain level of light. In the beginning, it's surprising, and then you get used to that environment. Um, and and this, uh, this is true across lots of things that the brain does. It turns out that the brain also reacts very strongly to our first act of lying, but then as we keep on lying more and more, the brain kind of stops reacting to it. So we, we start by being aware of this, maybe being a dishonest act, and we, we at least are aware of it. But over time, it just goes into the background, and we don't pay attention to it. Hmm. You've made the case uh, in several books and articles that lying and deception is not usually about you know, a rational cost-benefit equation where people are balancing the advantages of deception against the risk of getting caught, but about something that you call the fudge factor. What's the fudge factor? Yeah. So the cost-benefit analysis, by the way, is the kind of the standard framework in, in economics, right? You say to yourself, how likely am I to get caught? What will happen to me? What can I get away with? How much can I steal? And you basically do a cost-benefit analysis. We find that those things don't really matter. What we find that matters is this intricate balance between wanting to get a bit more selfishly, wanting a bit more right now. I wish I had a bit more money. I wish I had, you know, uh, you know more prestige, whatever it is. And on the other hand, uh, wanting to look at ourselves in the mirror and feel that we're good, honest people. We can cheat a little bit and still feel good about ourselves. So, for example, if you're on a 65-mile-an-hour road, if you're at 68, you don't think you're speeding. So we have this ability to rationalize our actions and to basically say, yes, you know, under FBI interrogation, I would realize this is not the perfect truth, but it's okay. There's still a reason for it. I can still rationalize. I can still explain what it is, especially when we don't think about it too carefully. Let's talk a little bit about solutions. Uh, you think that one of the things that the IRS should ask taxpayers to do is to fill out a testimonial that says, I declare that everything I say here will be the truth, only the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why do you think personal testimonials might be useful when people are filling out their tax returns? Yeah. So first of all, we have data. I'll tell you about it in a second. But think about our oral tradition. When people go to court, uh, we swear in the beginning, Right? And, and we swear in the beginning, not because we think we know already everything we've said, 
but we swear in the beginning because we understand as a society, as an institution, that honesty is about the mindset. And you basically say, I swear, I'll say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And you put yourself into that state of being honest from now on. Now, what happened that over the years, uh, lawyers got into things. And instead of using the oral tradition, we sign at the end, right? Every document you sign at the end, not in the beginning. So all of a sudden, it's not about your mindset going in. It's about verification of the fact afterward. But you know what? When you get to the end, Lying is over. It's done. Like imagine that you would uh, testify in court and you wouldn't swear in the beginning. You would swear at the end. What? You would say, oh, oh sorry, sorry. Let me go back to the third thing I said. <laughs> Let me change my opinion. <laughs> so what happened is that the legal tradition has kind of taken something that we all intuit quite basically, that honesty is about the mindset and change it to verification. So, so that was the, the initial intuition for this. And we've done quite a few experiments. In one of them, we did it with a big insurance company. This was an insurance company that sends people uh, letters uh, that ask them, how many miles did you drive last year? And if you drove more, you pay higher premium. You drove less, you pay a lower premium. And people, of course, have the incentive to declare that they drove less because then they would pay less. And they had the regular form, which you fill the numbers in and you sign at the bottom of the form. And we created a new version of the form in which people sign in the beginning. And what we saw was that people drove more by 15% in the condition when they signed up front. Wow. Um, by the way, we've replicated it in all kinds of ways, um, including with the procurement offices within the U.S. government, uh, including uh, with uh, taxes in uh, a country in South America, and including with uh, traveler insurance in Northern Europe. And in all of those cases, uh, you get people to sign something, they get into kind of a different mental state, they remember honesty, we kind of guard ourselves against being dishonest, and then, and then people feel things in a, in a more honest way. I'm, we're not sure perfectly honest, but more honest way. And, and by the way, we started by looking at the glass half full part of it. This is a tremendously glass half full um, a story because it says, we have the desire to be honest. Something about the education process gets people to want to be honest. We just need to remind people that they want to be honest, and then it works. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dan about the virtues of deception and self-deception. Our case study, Dan Ariely. Stay with us. Support for Hidden Brain comes from Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. That's why you need Robert Half. Robert Half's specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com. Support for Hidden Brain comes from NyQuil. It's your honeylicious cold and flu symptom helper, giving you powerful nighttime relief so you can catch some Zs. When you've got nighttime sniffling, sneezing, coughing, aching, and fever, NyQuil Severe Honey is on the case, giving you the best sleep you've ever had with a cold. When a cold keeps you up, try NyQuil Severe Honey Flavor. Use as directed. Keep out of the reach of children.
This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. When Dan Ariely was 17 years old, he was at a graduation ceremony. Flares were being sent up to celebrate, and one went off too close to him. 70% of his body was burned, and he spent the next three years in a hospital. This story is hard to listen to, but Dan's injuries and the experiences he had with doctors and nurses reveal a lot about human behavior. And they changed the way Dan came to think about deception and self-deception. It turns out that severe burns that cover all of your body don't, don't go away. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, I'm, I'm more than 30 years uh, later now, and I, my last surgery was last year. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It's a, it's a very, very difficult injury, a lot of pain in the beginning, very hard to recover, and then it keeps on. I mean, the challenges are just ongoing. So you get to the hospital. You're spending many weeks in the hospital. You're obviously in great pain. Uh, various operations and procedures are being performed on you. Did doctors share with you how badly off you were? No. So, uh, so first of all, um, you know, I was in the hospital for almost three years in, in total. Uh, uh, in the beginning, um, you know, of course, uh, all burn patients above 30% are kind of a risk of losing their lives, and, and nobody told me nobody told me that. Um, I actually don't think anybody really told me exactly what to expect. Um, but no, I didn't know how long it will be. I didn't know how painful it will be. I didn't understand what, what burns are. Uh, nobody actually uh, gave me this, um, you know, really sad view of how the future will evolve from the perspective of the burns. Now, as somebody who studies dishonesty and deception and who has made a very strong case against deception, you found yourself paradoxically looking back in hindsight, thinking that maybe the doctors did the right thing, that maybe they did the right thing by deceiving you, and maybe you helped in that deception with a certain amount of self-deception as well. Yeah, and you know, like like everybody who who gets injured in a in a in a deep way, you know, I also uh, contemplated uh, terminating my life. I, I didn't have much uh, power to do it, but but I I certainly uh, thought about uh, thought about that, and and I think that if I had at the time a, a more objective view of what the future would hold, I I might have tried to uh, to do that. So, you know, that's kind of on a a big philosophical kind of meaning of life kind of part, but but it also shows up in, in smaller ways. So I remember one surgery. Uh, so this was a surgery to my right hand. And after the surgery, they couldn't put cast on my hand, of course, because it was the, the skin. You can't put cast on the skin. So instead what they do is they put these metal nails through the bone to hold the fing the fingers. So I had kind of uh, two nails coming from the side of my thumb and a nail coming in each um, in each finger throughout the whole finger. And, you know, kind of uh, basically lots of needles uh, poking out. And by the way, at the end of them, they would put something so I wouldn't poke myself at night if I, by mistake, got my hand too close to my face. And and the surgery was, was done. And six weeks later, they were going to take off the, these nails. And I asked the nurse, uh, when are they going to schedule the operating room to take, to take this out? And she said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We're going to just take it out in the, in the department. And I said, don't, don't you have to put me to sleep for this? And she said, no, 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 it doesn't uh, hurt at all. And it turns out it really hurt. <laughs> now, 
it wasn't probably as bad as putting the nails in, but it was it was uh, painful and it took and it took a while to take these I don't know fifteen nails or so. But think about the the three weeks that I would have had agony, right? Of of being afraid. This way, I had the same pain, uh, but without the dread that came up with it. Now, do I justify lying? It's it's very tough. But do I recognize that it contributed to my well being and that I would have had three weeks of you know I was terrified as it is. You know, when you're when you're patient, your lack of control. And fear is just incredible. You, you're just lying in bed and other people decide what to do with you, when to do with you. Um, the helplessness is tremendous. And, and being having the fear of people pulling these nails out of me in, without anesthesia and being painful I, probably would have been very, very difficult to take at the time, adding to that. Um, so so I, I am grateful. I'm grateful. I... I, I I still think it's a it's a questionable decision, but I am grateful. I believe that at another time, a nurse introduced you to another burn victim who had survived, and she meant for this to be encouraging, but in some ways it had the opposite effect on you. Yeah. Um, this was maybe two or three months after my in- initial injury, and at that point I could see and I could talk a little bit and, and so on, and they brought somebody who got who got injured, and, you know, because I had no view of what my future would look like, I kind of imagined myself basically going back to regular life. I, I didn't uh, understand everything that was happening. And when they brought this uh, old patient to, to come, he was supposed to, to symbol you know, recovery. He was, I don't know, 15 years after his injury. He was supposed to uh, symbolize somebody who's you know, made it. And he, he looked terrible, with very severe burns. Uh, it was clear he, he didn't have functions of his uh, hands. He were, you know, everything I have now, right? So they were correct. Um, but at that point, it was a shock to realize that this was the future that they were, uh, like, optimistically I could hope for. And I was hoping for a much more optimistic future than that. Like, my own optimism was much higher than in that reality. So even though they brought that patient to show me how life could turn out well, uh, for me, it was just a shock to the system. I'm wondering whether this experience helped shape the way you think about self-deception. You know, self-deception has been widely criticized, and obviously it has many consequences, adverse consequences, when we lie to ourselves. But many people have also made the case that if we don't lie to ourselves ever, life becomes often unbearably difficult, and not just when you're, you know, suffering from serious burns, but in all kinds of different ways, we need to deceive ourselves to get through our day. What do you make of that argument? Look, there's no question that there's some truth to that argument. The question is how much of it, you know, which is true for all all questions about dishonesty, right? Uh, It's true that uh, dishonesty is uh, corrosive and destructive and terrible for society and so on. It's also true that uh, we don't want to eliminate it completely. And, and the real question is, is dosage and under what, what conditions? And, and I can tell you that um, sometimes I think about my experience in the hospital, not just with deception, but with, with pain and with uh, medications and with placebo and with lack of control and so on. It's kind of a magnifying uh, glass on all kinds of things in, in life, and, and in, including in deception. And I, I, I don't think I could have taken... Uh, the physicians uh, telling me exactly 
exactly the truth. And a couple of years ago, uh, I was I was asked to to help a young guy who was who was burned, and um, a, a relative of his uh, asked me to send this this kid uh, an optimistic note about his future. And and it was a tremendous torture for me because on, on one hand, I didn't think his future was going to be very optimistic. Uh, on the other hand, I didn't uh, I, I didn't think it would be right to expose him to the uh, full brutality of the many years that are uh, going to be ahead of him. I debated for for about two days uh, while while crying quite a lot about like what to tell him and what not to tell him, and and I've kind of brought myself back to what I wanted to know and not know, and and eventually I found some kind of compromise that I was okay with, um, but it was certainly not the brutal truth, straight up. Hmm. I want to wrap up with uh, a story that moves us forward by several years because I feel like this is a wonderful story that reveals so many different aspects about human nature, uh, the nature of deception, the nature of self-deception, the complexity of human behavior. You were once at an airport confronting a very long line at check-in. Do you remember the story of what happened next? <laughs> I, I, I remember. It's kind of embarrassing. Do we have to, do we have to talk about that? Can I, we talk about something else? <laughs> As, as your own research has shown, Dan, thinking about the stuff that's embarrassing can be very revealing. It, it is revealing, uh, yes. So, okay, we'll see where you go with this. Um, you know, I, I have an injury, but uh, I can, I, I'm not that injured. Huge line, and I'm, I'm there with a friend, and I ask him to uh, go and get me a wheelchair. And, you know, I have a hard time standing for a long time, but I don't need a wheelchair. And he got me a wheelchair, and we checked in uh, very quickly, and we cheated. I mean, I, I, we cheated, I cheated, uh, got quickly in front of the line. Um, but, but the second part of that story was that, so now I'm in this wheelchair uh, waiting for the, for the flight, and I try to go to the bathroom. And, of course, I try to go to the bathroom with a wheelchair, and, and the bathroom is just not designed for anybody uh, with a wheelchair. And I get really upset. I get really upset that the, the bathroom is not designed for people in, in wheelchair. And then it became worse because then it takes me with a wheelchair to the, to the plane and it turns out I'm in seat, I don't know, 37D or something. Um, and now how do I get to the seat? The, the wheelchair that they gave me was too, was too wide um, for the seat. We couldn't go through it. So he now carries me on his back uh, to seat 37D. <laughs> Um, which was fine, but this was a flight from New York to London, uh, and now how do I get to the bathroom? So I'm, I, it's kind of clear to me that I need to stay uh, to stay in, in in character, and I basically don't drink and I don't go to the bathroom. He carries me on his back uh, as we land land in London, and then I decide to go and complain to the people from <laughs> Air India. Uh, about how they're not treating people with disability. And you know what? I, I had in me the, the frustration of somebody who's actually on a wheelchair. I, like, I truly went into character. Maybe I should have been an actor. I truly went into character, and I truly felt the humiliation of somebody who actually needs a wheelchair, and the airline is just not doing the right, <laughs> the right thing. So, you know, this was like unbelievable ability to uh, to pretend I was something that I am not and very quickly get into the character and truly get upset and get upset over this now 
Just to say something um, in my own favor, in my own defense, if I may, Your Honor, I, I know you're judging me now. Um, it's, I, think, I think if I was not injured at all, it would have been tough for me to just make up something completely. But the fact that, you know, I kind of have some difficult standing, I have lots of burns on my legs, not that I deserve, I, I should need a wheelchair, but it was kind of a, an easier jump. And I think this is kind of the thing with the slippery slope that we see and this ability to justify our behavior in all kinds of creative ways. By the way, I should say one more thing. We find that when we look at personality tests of who cheats more, we thought maybe people who take more risks, maybe risk takers cheat more. No. Maybe intelligent people. No. Creative people cheat more. And why do creative people cheat more? Because cheating is all about being able to tell a story about why what we want is actually okay. And, and sadly, I think I'm creative. Dan Ariely, I want to thank you for joining me on Hidden Brain today. It was a pleasure, even though uh, you made me relive uh, some a little bit uh, humiliating moments, but I thank you for it. This episode of Hidden Brain was produced by Maggie Penman and edited by Tara Boyle. Our staff includes Jenny Schmidt, Raina Cohen, Parth Shah, and Laura Quirrell. This week, we're giving a shout-out to two unsung heroes, our colleagues Patrick Cooper and Dan Newman, Dan and Patrick work on digital media here at NPR, and they've brought creativity, coding skills, and patience to the Hidden Brain website. Thank you, Dan and Patrick, for all your hard work. For more Hidden Brain, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and listen for my stories on your local public radio station. If you like this episode, please tell one friend about our show. We're always looking for new people to discover Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam, and this is NPR. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Support for Hidden Brain comes from BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Maybe you'd see a movie by yourself, take a nap, read a book, or talk with a friend. Or maybe you'd enjoy doing nothing for once. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com hidden today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash hidden.